0: Acts chapter 19 verses 8 through 20 we've got like the trifecta of weird stories in the book of Acts here so I'm excited to get into it we discussed last week the importance of the baptism of the Holy Spirit right we saw that Apollos needed further instruction. We we saw that was probably about the baptism of the Spirit because the next story immediately after that is about some disciples of John who were baptized and then were baptized in the Spirit as well. And we saw the importance of that. But what we saw Luke is doing is he was opening up to this chapter which really emphasizes the supernatural nature of Christianity. And we've seen this throughout the book of Acts. That the Lord empowered the church to take the gospel out And he supported it with miraculous power from the Holy Spirit. But in Acts 19, we read that Luke, well Luke writes that Paul performed extraordinary miracles. Extraordinary. You'd think a miracle is already extraordinary, but this is extraordinary, extraordinary. In the city of Ephesus, miracles beyond normal miracles. We're also going to read a story about a botched exorcism. By people who tried to cast out a demon and they figured they'd use the name of Jesus Christ as a good luck charm. And uh, they learned that that's not a good thing to do. There's a lot to learn in this passage. You know, Jesus said in John 14, 12, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, not apostles, not prophets, not pastors, whoever believes in me, will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Jesus prophesied, the Old Testament prophesied, that during the time of the church there would be an increase in the work of the Spirit, an increase of supernatural activity. And we live under that same dispensation. We don't get to say, well, the book of Acts is over, so it doesn't count. You're going to see the book of Acts ends with a cliffhanger because the story wasn't over. We're still living it out. And Paul made it clear in Ephesians 6.12 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. He says, Christian, your fight is not on the physical level. The devil loves to keep it in the physical level because he lives in the Spirit. And he knows that Christians are stronger than him in the Spirit because we have the Holy Spirit. The Christian life is a spiritual, supernatural battle. But we're going to be honest with ourselves today. And say that our lives do not often look as if that was true. We're just going to be real. We also know, though, we cannot look at what the Bible says and then compare our lives to it. And then say, well, this is my life, so that must be right. The Bible must be wrong. That's not the right way to go. But how do we explain that? Well, we're going to see in this passage two kinds of people. Two kinds who were using the name of Jesus in their lives. One of them tried to use his name for their own ends. And there were others who gave up everything in radical repentance to follow him. If we want to see extraordinary ministry, and I'm not just talking about healing and miracles, although there is nothing wrong with desiring to see those things, but I'm talking about seeing lives transformed, about seeing communities completely flipped over, to see sins that have been lived in for decades overcome. If you want to see extraordinary ministry, you can't walk around with what you might call ordinary faith. We're going to see the Ephesian church. We're seeing extraordinary things. But they also had extraordinary commitment to Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to do today. I want to lay out what the Bible says is possible for the Christian life. But then to help us realize that the first step into those things is the renunciation of self. It's the wholehearted commitment to Jesus Christ. If we try and skip that step and move right on to the other things we're going to get in a lot of trouble. So let's see what happened. This is a very, very fun passage to get into. A lot of interesting things here, but there's also some really good lessons for us to learn. So let's begin by reading verses 8 through 10. And he, he is Paul in this story, he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn... And continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Okay, so Paul is on his third missionary journey. And we saw in the last section, he has made his way from the Galatian churches... So he always started in Antioch in Syria. He goes up north, and he visits Iconium, Derbe, Lystra, Antioch, and Pisidia, some of the churches he had planted on his first journey. And then he made it through the highlands, we read last time, through what's called the Lycus Valley, and came to Ephesus. So we've got a map here. This is Syria. This is Antioch here on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. He would have gone up through. This is Galatia here, and here's Ephesus. Right on the coast, he would have gone through what was called Asia. Asia is not the continent as we say it today. Asia was this province of Rome. Modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, you may have heard it referred to. And that's where Paul is. He's in Ephesus. Ephesus was a major city in Rome. It was a free city. Do you remember we talked about Philippi? It was a free city. It wasn't a colony like another city was, but it was a free city, meaning the people had freedom to govern themselves, but they were not Roman citizens. So it was one step below being a colony or an official citizen of Rome. But it was the capital of Asia, that, that province. It was also the center of commerce for the entire province of Asia. You can see how strategic it is here. It's right on the Aegean Sea. And if you're wanting to get anything into this area here, Ephesus is in this natural harbor, and so it's very easy to get ships in there. It was calm. It was safe so that the ships aren't going to be wrecked by the storms that come across the sea, and it's actually very interesting. There are no pictures of this left, but when you came out of the harbor of Ephesus, so when you were coming off the docks and you were going into the city, there was a 35-foot-wide main street. And it had colonnades on either side, which means it had pillars running that were then covered. And those were 15 feet deep. And this street was where all of the vendors were, all of the shops were. Anybody that could help you with anything was there. So it was this very impressive architectural structure that ran from the harbor all the way to a stadium that had been built by Emperor Nero that held 24,000 people. So when you first showed up in Ephesus, you immediately realized this is an impressive, wealthy place to be. But the pride of the city of Ephesus, unfortunately, was the Temple of Artemis, or the Roman name was the Temple of Diana. We've got a picture of that here. This is an artist's rendition, but we've got a lot of ancient descriptions, so we have a pretty good idea of what this looked like. The Temple of Artemis. This was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Artemis was the hunter goddess. She was the goddess of fertility. She was the mother goddess. So they worshipped her as you would worship a divine mother. And if you've ever seen statues of Ephesian Artemis, it's repulsive in a way because there are these idols of her, and she's got many, many breasts hanging off of her chest because it was a fertility symbol. And they would come and worship her, and part of the worship, as was often the case, was copulation with the temple priestesses. In the name of religion, of course. And she had magic spells scrawled all over her idols everywhere in town to keep things safe or to keep people healthy. So this is where Paul goes. The city had a reputation for sorcery and magic. It's going to be relevant in a few minutes here. In the Roman Empire, if you had what was called an Ephesian script, what it meant is you had a magical incantation that you could use to perform spells and things like that. Ephesus was associated with that. Similar to how Corinth was associated with sexual immorality and fornication. Ephesus was associated with magic. And Paul shows up here. This is his second trip to Ephesus. You remember on his way back from the second missionary journey, he stopped in and went to the synagogue, I think for a week or two or three, and they asked him to stay, but he said, no, I'm on my way back to Jerusalem. I want to be there for the festival. So he left Priscilla and Aquila there to be a representative for the church in the synagogue. And we saw that in the meantime, Apollos came and visited the church there. We don't know how long Priscilla and Aquila were there without him, but when Paul begins to preach, it's about three months until he removes himself from the synagogue. This was always Paul's pattern. We start in the synagogue preaching to the Jews, Before too long, they get rowdy, and he leaves and goes somewhere else. But three months, this is actually longer than it usually took for them to kick him out. And as it seems, they weren't uh, violent getting him out of there, but it says they became stubborn, and they spoke publicly against the way. Your Bible may have capitalized the word way, because that was originally what the, the church was called. It wasn't Christianity, it was the way. And apparently... When Priscilla and Aquila were there, everybody was willing to put up with it. But Paul shows up, and it takes three months, and they begin to speak out against him. Paul had a tendency to bring people to the point of decision pretty quickly. But he leaves, and he says he begins to teach in the hall of Tyrannus. You know, Tyrannus means tyrant, so we don't know who this was, but it doesn't sound like a very nice man, Uh, but he rented his hall, his lecture hall, and he began to preach there every day. This is very, very much like the first seminary in a lot of ways. It's as if we were to go to the university and rent a lecture hall and speak there every day. There are some traditions and, and some textual variants for the book of Acts as well that say Paul would have taught from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. every day. It's a long stretch to teach, and it's also right in the middle of the day. But it makes sense because in that part of the world, it was cultural that in the heat of the day, because it got so hot, everybody would take their midday siesta. They'd take a midday break uh, to not be out in the heat. So it was the perfect time for Paul to be preaching. But it also shows us how hard he worked because we know he was a tent maker. So he'd be working on his tents in the beginning of the day, preach for five hours, and then work on his tents for the rest of the day too. Nobody could say Paul was lazy. Well, he stays here for two years until these stories happen, and we know total he's going to be in Ephesus for three years. This is the longest Paul has stayed anywhere on any of his journeys. He stayed in Corinth for 18 months. That's the previous record, and he doubled it by staying in Ephesus for that long. And so many cool things happened in the city of Ephesus. This is where he wrote the letter to the Romans. This is where he wrote both the letters to the Corinthians, we also know from the Corinthian letters that he took at least one trip to Corinth, probably two trips. One of them was referred to as the painful visit. The Ephesian church would go on to be one of the powerhouses of the early church. Timothy would pastor the church here. The letters of First and 2 Timothy are written to him as he pastors in Ephesus. John, the evangelist, the son of Zebedee, would eventually become the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And it says, through this church, all of Asia was evangelized. All of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. We're going to see next week, it's going to give us a list of some of Paul's companions. But we know that men like Epaphras, men like Tychicus, men like Trophimus, which it actually says was an Ephesian, that they were planting churches all throughout Asia Minor. Cities like Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis. If you read the book of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3... All seven of those churches were in this area. So this is when those churches, Smyrna and Pergamum and so on, were being evangelized. This is also, of course, would lead to us having the letter to the Ephesians, which was written not in Ephesus, obviously, because he would have written it somewhere else. But that book is so rich in its doctrine and its language and its application. You could say in a way that Paul had more success in Ephesus than he had anywhere else. Except maybe Berea, but they ran him out of Berea pretty quick, even though the people were receptive to it. In fact, to this day, literally, we are benefiting from Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Because we're reading about what he did as instructive for our lives. It's pretty great. So let's read what happened here in Ephesus. Verses 11 and 12. We know that he's teaching daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And God was doing extraordinary miracles. By the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Extraordinary miracles or unusual miracles. For the person, Luke, who traveled with Paul, to say that something done was extraordinary, that's quite a threshold, isn't it? He saw all kinds of things. In Greek, this is dunamis utas tukusas. This is not the experienced miracles. He's saying this is something that we've never seen before. This was God doing new things through Paul. Extraordinary miracles. I mean, think about the book of Acts, guys. We've seen some pretty spectacular things so far. We saw a lame man who was raised up with just a word from Peter. We saw the prison doors opened multiple times. We saw resurrections. Remember Tabitha that Peter prayed for and raised from the dead? We've seen a lot of amazing things, dreams and visions. But Luke specifically calls attention to this as extraordinary. We know Paul was a tent maker, working with Priscilla and Aquila. And it seems that he had such a reputation for being a man of God, for being a miracle worker, which we know he was, that when he would take a break, people would sneak up, grab his sweatbands, and run home and give them to their sick mom or dad. And you know what? It worked. They were getting healed. My grandma has a demon. I'm gonna go steal one of Paul's aprons and bring it home and she'll touch it. So imagine that there's this demon-possessed man or woman. You have an apron in your hand that you took from a local tent maker. You drape it over the person and the demon comes screaming out of the person. That's extraordinary. That is not Normal, even in the realm of miracles, that is not normal. It reminds us of Luke 8:44 when the woman touched Jesus' cloak. Remember? If I can just touch his robe, that's all I need. And he says, wait, 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 wait. Who touched me? Because I felt power go out of me. Or in Acts 5.15, we read that people would try and lay people down in Peter's path so that his shadow would fall on them. And people were getting healed by Peter's shadow. That's extraordinary. You know, what's really great is that the church experienced a lot of things, but this was even beyond what they experienced. This is why Luke saw fit to include the stories. Now, we need to make sure we understand. I think you know, but let's make sure we understand. There was no special power in Paul's sweat. Wasn't that that Paul was sweating out miracles and that like if there was a rotten plant on the ground, if a drop of his sweat hit, it would like blossom into a flower or something like that? that's magic. We're not talking about magic. These handkerchiefs, sweatbands, aprons, what was this? This was a release point for somebody's faith in the God of Paul. that, That God that he preaches, Jesus, I think his name is, he's got some power. And it's not that their faith was in the handkerchief, it's that their faith was in the God that the man who wore that handkerchief preached. And the Lord is gracious, isn't he? God is willing to give people a lot of slack when it comes to matters of faith. Sometimes more slack than we would like him to give. Lord, you can't bless them. Don't you know what they're doing? I've seen that some of these crazy charlatans on TV that want to talk about, give me all your money and God will bless you and all this stuff. People will talk about how I was saved through that guy's ministry and I was healed through that person. I'm like, that guy's crazy. Why would the Lord bless that? He's like, well, no, God wasn't blessing him. God was blessing this poor person's faith, even though they didn't understand what was going on at the time. Which is why Jesus said that there will be many who stand before him on the final day and say, Lord, I healed people and cast out demons in your name. He's going to say, get out of here. I never knew you. You didn't do anything. I was the one doing all that. In spite of you, not because of you. I've even seen people on TV. This is back before you had like, the internet, and before you had digital cable where you could like, pick what you're going to watch. It's like You had the 10 channels, and whatever was up there in like, the 60s, which was always some weird religious channel, there was always some crazy guy yelling and screaming on TV, and selling. You know, he's, he's wiping his head with his sweatband or his little cloth, and he says, now I'm going to sell this, and if you send in your gift, whoever gets it, it'll heal any disease you have. And you know, there's biblical evidence for that right here in Acts 19. Okay, you have learned the wrong lesson from that. There are people that, I mean, I remember one guy that tried to sell wallets. If you buy this wallet, it'll never be empty. Yeah, that's biblical, isn't it? You're completely missing the point of that story. But on the other hand, I don't want to downplay this too much. There is weird stuff, but the devil loves to use weird to drive us away from what is right and good. Amen? Amen? It was not remarkable for Luke that people were being healed. What was remarkable for Luke was the method by which they were being healed. Luke saw people being healed everywhere. But what was remarkable is that Paul didn't even have to be there this time. People would just show up to church, Oh, I used to be possessed and then my my son stole your apron and brought it home and, and touched me. He did what? Paul was probably running out of aprons and sweatbands. Not a bad way to lose things though, I must say. But you know what you see here? By calling it extraordinary, Luke is reminding us that the early church expected the miraculous. Oh, isn't it amazing? People are being healed. Luke's like, well, people are always healed. Come on. Jesus said in Mark 16, verses 17 and 18, before he ascended to heaven, these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Jesus is saying, as we said at the beginning, there will be an increase of spiritual activity after Jesus ascends to heaven. Because he says, I'm going to fill millions of people with my Holy Spirit. And people have taken that verse too and said, oh, that's great. Let's go drink some poison. You missed the point once again. That was Jesus' promise, that after I'm gone, I'm going to send you out to do this work, and I'm going to support you with my power, and you're going to see some amazing things. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, he was announcing the dawning of the era that had been prophesied by the prophets. Acts chapter 2, verse 16 and 18. The whole church is speaking in tongues. And all these people show up and say, what is happening right now? They must be drunk. And Peter says, no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, that in the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Peter is saying, we have entered a new, very exciting time of history where the Lord is going to be doing more than he has done in the past. Paul makes reference in 1 Corinthians and elsewhere to those who have been gifted to perform healing and miracles. James tells us, if anybody's sick, let him come before the elders. Let them anoint them with oil, pray for him, and they will be healed. The book of Acts is our example of what to expect. We are told to expect that the Holy Spirit will confirm the preaching of the word with signs and wonders, that he'll answer the prayers of the church. That's what the Bible says. So the question becomes, why do we not see miracles like this today? That's a fair question that you should never feel bad about asking. But let's frame this a little bit. First of all, I don't think that's entirely correct. I think we do see a lot of this stuff going on. If I were to go around the room and ask you, do you have any stories of... The Lord ever healing somebody in your life, or a miracle happening, or an angelic experience that you've had. Just about everybody has a couple of those stories, and if we were to list them all out in front of everybody, like, "Wow, this is like a Book of Acts kind of church," but for some reason, we're afraid to talk about it. We keep it to ourselves. You want to know the biggest lie, and it is a lie. And if you're dealing with this, I, I, I hope that you will hear this from me. Well, that was just for me. God wants that to be for me and not to be for anybody else no the Lord wants that to build faith in other people's lives the Lord healed me but I'm going to keep that to myself no you need to tell that to somebody else because they might be in need of healing and they might be able to believe in that moment well if God can do it for you he can do it for me well I think I might have had a dream from the Lord but I don't want to share it that'd be weird we've got to get over that We've got to let the Word of God show us what is normal and what to be expected. So first of all, I do think we see those things. I've seen people healed. I have seen dreams and visions in my life and in other people's lives. I've seen people speak in tongues and prophesy. I've done those things. So I have experienced exactly what the Bible told me to expect. I don't know that I've seen any extraordinary miracles. Hopefully I will one day. But first of all, it does happen. Second of all, we all know these stories that happened from the mission field, don't we? We all we hear these amazing things and we go, wow, that's so great. But, you know, if we tell some of the stories that we hear from India or Africa and say, no, it happened in Alabama or Kansas or Texas. We go, well, I mean, did you get confirmation? I'd like to see a doctor's note on that. It's amazing. I don't know why all of a sudden we can have faith that it happens there, but not faith that it will happen here. The short answer, I think, of why we don't see as much of this as the Bible seems to indicate we will, we live in a culture that has no faith in the supernatural. None. Or if we do, it's really strange and weird and everybody just kind of wants to ignore it and look the other way. And it's bled over into the church to now even in the church we have no faith in the supernatural anymore. Mark chapter 6 verses 5 and 6. Jesus was in Nazareth, his hometown. And they thought Jesus had gotten a little big for his britches. They said, we know who you are. You're the son of a carpenter. And they said that they despised him when he preached to them. And it says in these verses, Jesus could do no mighty work in Nazareth, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Jesus Christ went to Nazareth and could only heal a few people because they had no faith. That sounds like a description of us, doesn't it? We have no faith in these things, so every now and then the Lord will heal a few people, but we sit here and we go, I I can't believe in any of that. We are people of science. We're people of logic and rationalism. We put a man on the moon. What do we need miracles for? Ephesus had a lot of problems. One problem they did not have is skepticism. They were open to spiritual things. In fact, they were way too open to spiritual things. But they did not have to learn faith in a miraculous God when they were saved. Why are we so reluctant to talk about miracles and angels and visions? I've said this before. We say the word angel and you sort of clench up a little bit. Like It's one thing to believe in God. Oh, that's very noble. It's very respectable to believe in God. I also believe in angels. Okay, weirdo. (laughs) But guys, isn't the Bible full of those things? We read about it in Scripture and we go, yay, angels we have heard on high, sweetly singing over the plain. Someone says, Lord, I pray that you would send your angels to protect us. And we go, oh, come on, don't pray that. People are going to think we're weird. If that's weird, it's Bible weird and I'm okay with it. Don't ever let your belief in what God can do be dictated by your Embarrassment. Paul said, I'm not going to read the whole passage for time's sake, that when he came to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 2, he said, I didn't come with lofty speech. I came with the power of God. We've got it flipped. Lots of people can preach. Not a ton of power. Now, that's what the Bible has told us is possible and should be expected. The wrong thing for Pastor Tyler to do would be to say, now I'm going to give you five steps on how to see more miracles in your life. Plenty of ministries have fallen into that problem. What we see in the book of Acts is that Paul taught the word faithfully, and the Lord supported his ministry with the power of the Spirit. The danger is, if you want to compare the ministry to a boat, and we're in the middle of the ocean, and we're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come and blow and move us forward, we say, this is taking too long, and we chop down the mast, and we make oars out of it, and we start rowing. We're moving forward, but that's not how that boat was meant to move. It's about letting the Lord move us forward. Learning how to set the sails and expect the Lord to support us. That's what we're going to learn to do. We can't manufacture anything because we have no power on our own. Despite what crazy people on YouTube and Facebook want to tell you, there's no hidden secret chakra chi inside of you that a couple quick rounds of yoga will let you start telling things to obey you and you can speak healing and prosperity into your life. That's not what the Bible says. Jesus is not a good luck charm to get you nice things, as this next group of people learned the hard way. Let's read verse 13 through 17 now. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. And this is like the most bone-chilling verse in the Bible here. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Okay, Paul's preaching in the hall of Tyrannus. Extraordinary miracles are being done. The name of Jesus is gaining some recognition in the city of Ephesus. And as is still the case to this day, there were some people who decided to make use of the name of Jesus for their own ends. We have here... The seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva. It is very unlikely that this was an actual high priest. At most, he may have been in the high priestly family, but I doubt this was like Caiaphas' son or something like that. More likely, this guy had a sign hanging out his door that said, Sceva, the chief high priest of the mysteries of Judaism. So that people came in and said, Ooh, a high priest, he knows what he's doing. These people were trading off of the mystique of being Jews in a foreign city. This weird, mysterious Eastern religion that the Ephesians were ready to look to. And they made a living casting demons out of people, allegedly. We actually have records of the kind of things that would have been done in these sorts of ceremonies. There were practitioners that would basically come in and repeat and chant every powerful name they could think of to try and get power over an evil spirit. There are some of these that we actually have the text of. They've been found of these incantations. And some of them included the names of Jesus. Let me read you two of these. One of them is you'd open up your book and you'd start reading, I adjure you by Jesus, the God of the Hebrews. There was another one that you would say, Hail, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, Jesus Christus, Holy Spirit, Son of the Father. They don't know what they're talking about. They're just throwing words together. It's like, here's some powerful gods, let's chant their names. If you've seen the kids' movie, The Prince of Egypt, which is the story of Moses, it's an animated version, you see that, they're basically chanting the names of all their false gods, thinking it'll give them power. Now, we believe as Christians in demonic possession. It's in the Bible, we believe in it. There are fallen angels, evil spirits, that have rebelled against God, and have made it their business to harass men, to tempt people, even to possess them, which is to take command of their body and their voice and even their minds in some cases. I do not claim to know everything about demons. The Bible does not feed our hunger for speculation on this topic. It's probably better for us that way, just to focus on the Lord and not on demons. But it does seem, as we saw in the life of Jesus several times, that some evil spirits want to have a host. They want to have a body to live in. It does not say why and there are things that we've seen in scripture but also that faithful men have taught me and have shown that that people will engage in that will open themselves up to this kind of thing and i know those that have gotten involved in magic and in those kinds of weird spiritual things or drugs or profound unbelief, like deliberate, violent, angry unbelief, or just persistent sin that a person refuses to repent of. It brings you to a place where you're wide open to the attacks of the enemy. And I will say this too, and this needs to be said. Not only can a Christian not be possessed, you're already full of the Holy Spirit. The Lord is not about to share the space with some demon, okay? But secondly, demonic possession is not a secret thing. I, I've had a lot of people over the years, very concerned, honest, sincere people, say, I think my son, my daughter, my friend, my mom might be possessed. Well, why? Well, I don't know. They're just not acting like themselves. Okay. <laughs> when, we, when we spoke to our, our pastor friends in Nepal who deal with this all the time, my dad asked them, so he said, so how do you know when a person has been possessed by a demon? And this whole room of Nepali pastors bust out laughing. They say, what? And they go, oh, you'll know. <laughs> so he really goes, oh, yeah. There's, there's no, like, secret possession. It's obvious. Somebody's being controlled by an evil spirit. It's not like they're just, you know, I think you might have a secret demon. That's not how possession works, okay? It is possible, the word says, to give place to the devil, whereby persistent unbelief, or by persistent sin and walking and believing in the lies that he's told you, where. It's almost as if the Lord has no power in that area of your life. That doesn't mean that Jesus can't step in and sweep it all away. But that's not the same thing as being possessed, you understand. Possessed people went and lived in the tombs and cut themselves with stones, okay? And there's no specialized ritual in the Bible about how to cast out a demon. Except for right here when these people did it and got beat up for it. You know why? Because when you're confronting Satan, you don't have to drum up power. You know, I've just got to repeat this over and over and over again until we're ready. You are already filled with the Holy Spirit of God. When Jesus showed up, the demons screamed in fear and ran away. As they did with Paul. We saw this in Philippi, Right? Paul, greatly annoyed, turned around and cast the demon out of the oracle. Jesus said in Luke 10, 19, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. The devil's biggest trick is to spook us into thinking he has power over us. And most of it is just fear. It's fear tactics. We say things like, the the devil can't possess you. He kind of shows up and says, oh, yes, I can. Ah, Booga, booga, booga. We have the authority of Jesus Christ. You don't have to put up with his nonsense. Well, I don't know. I'm not Jesus. You are filled with the Spirit of Jesus. 1 John 4.4 4 says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. But the sons of Sceva saw Jesus as just another God to invoke. But they learned how foolish it is to brandish the name of Jesus when you don't belong to Jesus. This is like a spooky little story, isn't it? The demon looks them dead in the eyes and says, oh, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? Who do you think you are to command me? What do you think that, that felt like for them in that moment? It's what, what's called your, your heart dropping into your stomach is what that is. And this demon-possessed man attacked them and drove them away. And they run out of this house bleeding Jim Simbola, who's pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle, I went to his one of their events, and he told a story of this time uh, somebody brought up a woman for prayer. And I mean, he's in New York, so they get all kinds of crazy coming in there, you know. And they brought this woman in. He said she's like five nothing. We met her later. She's very nice now, but she had this whole long story that he didn't know at the time. But her friend brought her up, and I just don't know. She, I think she needs prayer. And this little woman was possessed. And Jim Cimbalo was a basketball player. He's like 6'3". He's a big, tall guy. This, he said this girl picked him up and chucked him onto the stage and broke his pulpit in half. He said, I still have the shirt. It's ripped right there. Because he didn't know what he was dealing with. He just thought he'd lay hands on her and start praying for her. But they, in the name of Jesus, commanded the demon to depart. And it did. And now that woman's on staff and helps lead their prayer ministry. How cool is that? Demons give strength and ferocity to the people they abuse. Which is, again, why we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. What do we take from this story? The name of Jesus is powerful, and it's known in heaven and hell as the name above every name. Even people that don't know anything about Jesus, that demon knows about Jesus. And if we believe, by the way, too, that casting out demons may be done in the name of Jesus by a word of faith, We should also have that same amount of faith for the temptation and the harassment that we go through. If we believe that the Lord can cast a demon out of a possessed person with just a word, why do we think that we're going to need years and years of counseling to overcome the temptation that Satan has put upon our lives? That's a lesser thing. The Lord can overcome those things in a moment. But I think for some reason we would have more faith to confront a demon-possessed person in the name of Jesus than we do the own sins that we go through. But you know what you also learn here? Flinging about the name of Jesus like it's a rabbit's foot is not going to help you. I said his name. There are people that will even preach like this. If you pray in Jesus' name, he is bound to help you. God is not bound by anything. God is a person. His power is sent willingly to those who know him and love him and are serving his purposes. James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. He says, oh, I believe in God. He goes, that's great. Demons believe in God too. In fact, they probably got their theology a little better than you do. <laughs> We're talking today about extraordinary ministry. The life of power of a Christian. If the name of Jesus is no more to you than a talisman, it will not happen. I've got my lucky Jesus charm right here. I've got a cross around my neck. Therefore, nothing can touch me. Nothing wrong with wearing a cross around your neck unless you think that now I'm, I'm, I'm protected. It doesn't matter if you have the cross out here. Do you have the cross in here? Are you living out the empty tomb in your heart? And you know what's so cool about this story? And I've got to go faster, but Paul's name was known in hell too. The demons knew who Paul was. His faith and his faithfulness were legendary, even among the demons. They're having meetings. What are we going to do about this guy? We were able to drive him out of Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Athens. He won't leave. He's been here for three years. Go cause trouble in Corinth. Maybe he'll leave. Because Paul knew God, his life was extraordinary. Guys, halfway is no way. If you're going to try and fight a spiritual battle, half-heartedly bring in the name of Jesus every now and then, you're going to lose every time. And you're going to get embarrassed by an adversary who knows how to play his game. But if you stand on the name of Jesus and you let it fill every part of your life, Leonard Ravenhill used to say, my, my number one goal is to have my name known in heaven. My number two goal is to have my name known in hell. He says, I want to have a wanted poster down in hell that says, Leonard Ravenhill, $10 million for anybody who brings him down. But you've got to start by fearing Jesus. You can't go, ooh, I want that. How do I get that? So you've got to start here. If anybody Jesus said comes in and jumps over the wall and doesn't go through the gate, he's a thief and a robber, Right? Well, the Ephesians began to fear the name of Jesus. And some of these Christians are going to set us an example of what step one looks like if this is the life you want to live. Verse 18. Also, many of those who were now believers. So who are we dealing with? Christians, believers. They came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magical arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is maybe the most fascinating revival in the book of Acts. We've seen revivals among the Gentiles, among the Samaritans. Now it's among the magicians. The magician's revival. How would you like to go to a church where just about everybody used to be a magician? (laughs) Uh, I don't know about this. This doesn't feel like the kind of place I want to raise my children. (laughs) These people repented sincerely. You know, has it felt to you like it has to me? There's been a lot of magic in the book of Acts. We dealt with Simon Magus in Samaria who wanted to buy the power of the Holy Spirit. There was Elymas Bar-Jesus, remember, who was whispering in the ear of the proconsul and Paul struck him blind. There was the oracle of Philippi that they cast the demon out of. It was a problem in that world, especially in Ephesus. Remember I said the Ephesian scripts? If you had an Ephesian script, it meant you had a magic book. They had incantations and spells and rituals. It was a cultural problem in that city. I don't know that it's a cultural problem in this city. In Ephesus, it definitely was. The Lord had said in Deuteronomy 18, 10 through 12, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination, or tells fortunes, or interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. Seeking to secure good luck through magical means, or know the unknowable, or contact the dead, or manipulate events through potions and spells, that is a denial that God is wise enough and powerful enough to take care of your life. As Christians, and I've said this every time we've come across it in Acts here, you have no business dabbling in horoscopes and spells and potions or weird crystal things or drugs to achieve an altered state of mind. Galatians 5.20 says these things are the fruit of the flesh. This is from a monk from back in the late 300s, early 400s A.D. And we've got a picture of him. This is his most recent photograph. Can we get him up there? there that's his most recent picture. His name was Shinute. He wrote, those fallen into poverty or in sickness or some other trial often abandon God and run after enchanters or diviners or indeed seek other acts of deception. Just as I myself have seen the snake's head tied on someone's hand, another one with a crocodile's tooth tied to his arm, and another with fox claws tied to his legs. Listen to this impiety. Fox claws, snake's heads, crocodile's teeth. It's about this that the prophet Elijah blamed Israel in his time, saying, how long will you limp on two legs? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. He says, if the oracle sanctuary of demons is useful to you, and enchanters and drug makers and all the other things that work for lawlessness, then go to them so that you'll receive their curse on earth and eternal punishment on the day of judgment. But if it is the house of God, the church, that is useful to you, go to it. Now, we don't tie fox claws around our ankles. But back in Egypt where he was, people had all kinds of weird charms and magic things. And he's like, the minute it gets hard, you go run after some magician. He says, either go there or go to the Lord's church. But you can't do both. <laughs> Come on, it's, I don't really believe that. It's, you know, it's just fun. It's just a joke. Those things will ensnare people. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, he said, I don't want you to be participants with demons. And notice in this story, it was those in the church that came and brought their magic books. It wasn't the people outside. It was folks that had been baptized, come to the church, and thought they could keep it both ways. We just won't tell Paul that sometimes we go home and we read through our Ephesian script and we chant the names of false gods. Sort of like I know when uh, when I've talked to Nathan and Abby who are missionaries in... Uh, Haiti, I believe it is, they talk about what a problem it is, the voodoo and the hoodoo, and like they're taking all the old weird magical rituals and then trying to blend it with Christianity and say this is okay. These people learned through what happened to the sons of Skiba that Jesus was not just another magic man among many, but he was something real and totally different. So they came and they repented and they burned their books. They burned the books so that nobody else could ever use them. I'm going to sell my magic books and give the money to the poor. Well, great. Now you've just passed on that sin to somebody else. They burned it, and it was 50,000 silver coins. This was either the Greek drachma or the the Hebrew denarii. We don't know. Either way, it's a lot of money. 50,000 coins of silver. This is radical repentance. You know what Jesus said in Matthew 530? I know you do. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members and that your whole body go into hell. I paid good money for this book. I'm never going to use it again. I, 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 can, I can survive. I'll, I'll keep it on the shelf, but I'm not going to read it ever again. Yeah, right. I'm going to go there, but I'm not going to engage in any of that sin. We do things like that, don't we? Well, I'm, I'm not going to delete that app, but I'm never going to use it again. Sure you will. Of all the miracles that took place in Ephesus, this is the best one. A bunch of magicians built a bonfire and rid themselves of their sinful practices. In the church, getting purged of all that stuff. And the gospel says, increased and prevailed mightily in Ephesus. When the church gets it right, the rest of the culture is affected. You can't skip that step. We want to see extraordinary ministry. Okay, have you gone through your house and found all the magic books or whatever and burned them up? Well, we'll deal with that later. There's grace. Wrong. It's not going to work. Well, let's just go fix the culture. Don't try and take the speck out of somebody's eye when you've got that log sticking out of your eye. We've got to stop people from going to the temple of Artemis. You've got magic books in your house. Apply that to your own situation. Let me ask you as we come to a close here. Are you dabbling in halfway? Are you permitting sin in your life and then questioning why God doesn't do more to help you? God, why don't you do miracles in my life? God, why won't you heal me? God, why won't you deliver me from this? God, I'm struggling with that. You've got sin in the camp. Get rid of it start there. We all want to see miracles done. We all want to see demons overcome. We all want to see lives transformed. But if it doesn't start with death to sin and obedience to Christ, it's not going to happen. It's got to start with us. Everybody in this room is angry about something out there that you read on the news. But if you don't start by looking directly at yourself and seeing where am I getting it wrong, you have no right to turn the guns outward. Peter said, judgment must begin, and it must begin at the house of God. Jesus said to Peter, Andrew, James, and John, come follow me. And they left their nets. told Matthew, come follow me. He left his tax table. Well, it seems kind of foolish to get rid of the boat, to quit your job. I mean, you can do both. They knew better. What have you left behind to follow Jesus, Christian? Or have you packed a backpack? Lord, I can't climb this mountain, it's so hard. And the Lord's like, well, you've got a backpack full of stuff. If you drop it, you probably could do this. It would be premature for us to start talking about healing or cultural renewal if the church has not cleansed itself of sin first. And you know what we love to do? We love to ignore the big obvious ones and try and find these little niche sins. Have you ever seen this? They want to convince everybody that the church is full of sin, but you have to go through my five week course to understand that it's a sin in the first place. How about sexual immorality? Can we start with that? How about cursing? Can we start with that? How about lies? These are obvious things. Can we start there? How about laziness and gluttony? Those are obvious. Can we start with that? I, I, I'm too worried about my own stuff. To start worrying about all these other people. And I also know that when the church starts to get it right, then the Lord can use the church naturally and organically. And people sit back and go, it just got better. I don't know how. You'll never defeat Satan and all his works in your life if you're doing halfway stuff. That's ordinary. We are called to be extraordinary as we follow Jesus. You know what's possible. We just read it together. The authority and the power of the Holy Spirit. But if you intend to keep walking around with sin in your pocket, you're not going to see any of that stuff. And you're going to spend your life being critical of other people because you know that if you sit still and quiet too long, the Lord's going to start pointing out all that stuff in your life that you've got to get right. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Maybe this is the prayer we've got to pray today. David said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David did not come to God assuming everything was fine. He came to God in faith, but he said, God, if there's a problem, I want to know about it so we can fix it. Unconfessed, unacknowledged sin is the biggest hindrance to victory in Christ. Several times, and I have seen people delivered, whether they've been healed, whether they've been able to get over something in their life, there's something that seems totally unrelated that they haven't dealt with. The amount of people who have come to me asking for prayer for X when the problem is Y, I can't count that. And the Lord will give you these little nudges and you say something like, okay, well, is there any unforgiveness in your life? And then the person just starts breaking down crying. Well, is there, is there like some sort of pornography problem or something going on? Boom, they fall down and they're broken before the Lord. Is there some sort of addiction or some inappropriate relationship that you might want to confess to the Lord? Just saying it just nice like that and boom, it collapses. Because we think that we got to fix this stuff up here when in reality you've got magic books at home. You've got the gold and the tapestry that you stole from the city of Jericho and you buried under your tent. And now the church can't get victory and we don't know why. Remember when all those people would come to Jesus and they'd say, Lord, I want to follow you. And the one guy, he said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's telling this guy, you're too obsessed with your own comfort in life. If you're going to follow me, it's not going to be comfortable. Or when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, Lord, what must I do to be saved? Sell everything that you have and come and follow me. Because he was bound up in greed. If you were to come to Jesus today and say, Lord, I want to follow you, what roadblock would he put in front of you that you'd have to get over? I can't answer that for you. But the Holy Spirit knows the answer, and he's probably telling you right now. I call upon all of us today to empty ourselves, to cast aside the sins and the weights that Hebrews 12 talks about. To follow Jesus radically. Let it burn. It's all going to burn anyway. I hope that our names can be known in heaven and in hell as adversaries that the devil's got to watch out for. Men and women who have left everything. When you leave everything behind, there's no more leverage the enemy has over you. Oh, you know, that person is starting to share the gospel at work. No problem, we got him on this thing, just apply the pressure a little bit. When you've lost all that stuff, the Lord can use you and there's nothing that can stop you. We need to live solely at the instruction and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit of God. And that begins with repentance, getting rid of sin. We want to go help people. We want to go save people. But the problem that the church and the world faces is that sin has corrupted everything. And if we have not let the Lord strain those things out of our lives, it's not going to be what the Lord intended it. Extraordinary miracles require extraordinary faith. And that starts with extraordinary repentance. And extraordinary commitment to Jesus Christ.